This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and today I'm going to be sharing an interview with Jason Palmieri. He is the co-director of the Ohio Writing Project. He's also a teacher. He's also an author, and we're going to be talking mostly about multimodal education. Some people call it multi-genre work, and we'll explain what all that is if you aren't already familiar with it, and we're also going to do a deep dive into just all kinds of ways of thinking about this kind of work. But first, let me share a poem with you. This poem is called A Winter Hike by Christina Schneckel. And Christina is a member of the OWP community. So here it is. A Winter Hike. Cold, crisp air, warm sun, crunchy, squishy feet, serene silence, dry mouth, sweet water, no smell, fresh air, Dips and dives of hills, winding path of creek, weight of the world lifts, neck pain dissolves. Okay, so here we go. Before we get into today's interview, I want to play a clip of a multimodal, multi-genre project that Jason Palmieri created, along with um, his collaborator, Ben McCorkle. He did this is part of a piece that he wanted to publish, but also as a model, a teacher-created model that he could share with his students. So check out this little clip. For 1930s English teachers, the proliferation of radio was a humongous cultural shift. Humongous. Huge. To get an idea of just how huge a force radio was in the 1930s, let's listen to Max Herzberg's thoughts in 1935. The number of hours of time each day when the radio is on in American homes, places of businesses, offices, and school must reach figures of astronomical vastness. Young people, of course, have the habit even more than those of an older generation. The radio to them is as commonplace as the weather, and its marvels are as much a matter of course as those of the telephone, or electric lighting, or the photoplay. Many of them have the radio performing constantly during waking, and sometimes working hours. The beat of a jazz band accompanies, agreeably for them, the study of Julius Caesar, the probing of a geometrical problem, or a translation from Victor Hugo. I gotta say, if you replace the word radio with the word cell phone in this quote, it sounds strangely contemporary. These kids and their multitasking. They just can't focus on serious books anymore. I know, right? They literally can't even. Okay, so Jason and I are going to talk a little bit about that clip and then the rest of that podcast, whose link you can find in our show notes, by the way. Um, And we're going to talk about that. We're going to get a little bit of inside baseball into his process because I think it has some really important teaching implications, which we'll also talk about. 
But first, we'll be talking about multimodal instruction and Jason's vision for it. And here it is, my interview with Jason Palmieri. If someone doesn't already know much about multimodal education, what would be like the elevator pitch? Sure. Um, so the concept of multimodality is really about bringing all forms of meaning making to education. Um, so the idea of multimodal education in that term um, really kind of dates back to the New London group in the 90s. But the practice of combining all forms of meaning making in education, of course, is much older than that. Um, so I guess my simple definition of multimodal would be it's combining alphabetic texts, whether in print, handwriting, or digital format, and then other forms of meaning making. So that might be still images, hand-drawn or photography, moving images, um, you know, bodily movement, spoken voice, mm -hmm. not just the words spoken, but the, the tone of voice, music, um, even sort of designing spaces. Um, I'm, I'm definitely getting much more interested in some of the sort of spatial elements, especially um, because I've been engaging more with Angela Stockman's work and uh, we're going to be involving her in some way in a writing project um, course I'm teaching this summer with Stacey Reeder and she's doing just really amazing things with physical making as a form of invention for writing. Um, I guess the final thing I would say about, about multimodality that's really my pitch for it is that we often see it as a very new thing, like this is just effective new digital technologies, uh, but the reality is that writing and reading have always been multimodal processes, that in order to engage with or produce written text, um, we're thinking in images. My own writing process involves like taking walks. Um, in my newest book, that's a collaborative book, it often involved taking walks with my collaborator and like talking. And then maybe we got in Google Docs, but like the walking and the talking was as essential to the process. Um, you know, for many other people, it sometimes might involve like sketching along the way. So often we think of like multimodality as like drop in one multimodal project. But I think what's most profound about it is that all communication always involves choices. Um, even the print page, like the choice to publish a text with only print words um, and only like simple indented paragraphs and no images and really boring typeface, that's a choice. Um, I'm borrowing from Anne Wysocki's work here. It's a choice that sort of says, this is very serious writing. Don't pay too much attention to the body behind it. Um, and often we, we think of that as just plain writing, but no, that's a design text and it was designed to be that way. And we can imagine how would it look differently if it had images in it, if the font was fun. Yeah, um, if know. the paragraphs were shorter. Right. <laughs> and so what I'm, there's a couple of things I kind of want to unpack. Well, let's hop off the elevator and we'll get into the, I don't know, fi fire, fire escape. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry for you already that you're going to have to edit me. <laughs> yes. But what I'm getting, is that whether you call it multimodal, multi-genre, and I'm sure there are lots of other names that teachers have put on things um, like this, it's not 
as linear of a process. I think it's a mistake that we make all the, at least I do, all the time in teaching is that learning is linear. If I do this, they will go from point A to point B, and then I can move on to the next thing that I teach. And I'm hearing something similar in the way you describe multimodal um, teaching. It's like when you said part of the process was going for a walk and talking, it was not just sitting down and writing, drawing, making video. It's very nonlinear, right? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's a deeply nonlinear process. I was actually thinking about the going for a walk and some of the affordances of digital education since I've been teaching remotely this year. And um, I often do like invention activities for writing in class, but I was going to have students do them on their own. And so I added things like go for a walk, turn off your cell phone while you're on that walk, just see what you see and see what happens in your head or just talk to a person in your life, like, and then sort of come back and like record those notes however you want to record them. And I found that that was super productive and like students got a lot out of it. And like, that's a thing I'm going to actually start like making an assignment. Um, but it's, it's one of those things, like, I agree with the, the non-linear, like sometimes like for some of the students, the walk was transformative and they invented mm -hmm. something amazing. And some of them just really needed to take a silent walk that day. Mm -hmm. Like it meant something in their life that day, but it didn't immediately lead to an amazing product. Um, and so, yeah, I think that sense that like learning is messy, it's cyclical, and that sometimes the things that we make don't always have to turn into a perfect product. In the end, that it's really more about the process. And I think what I would maybe say about that, that has been in my journey, is I started getting interested in teaching multimodally because I wanted to dwell like where my students were, you know, college students uh, in that case, um, what kind of text they cared about. I wanted them writing to real audiences. And I realized the kind of print texts I cared about were not the ones they were reading and engaging with and wanting to make. Um, and so that brought me there. Um, but I think more and more what I actually think was the most important insight there was dwelling where my students are and trying to cultivate what their passions are and connecting them to those passions that like all writing instruction should just be that way. It should be playful and fun and we should be okay with, hey, there was a lot of great reflective thinking even though this final product wasn't perfect. Um, so in some ways, it was sort of like getting connected to a new technology, but it sort of brought me back to, I think, a more eternal truth about how learning works. So beautiful. You know, I was thinking is about how, like, when I do this kind of work with students, there's a pretty strong, there's a strong, there's a large amount of unteaching or a lot of, a lot of unlearning that, in the, that students have to do when they're trying to tackle a meaningful project. Because I noticed that one of the first things that we have to unlearn is focusing and obsessing over the product when you don't really know what you're coming up with yet. Have you seen that? I mean, I imagine it's even, there's even more unlearning when people get to the college level, because that's more years <laughs> of learning that you have to undo. Just because it's not a teach, it's not teacher's fault. It's just like the system makes it, and the way we were taught has conditioned us to jump into the product. It has to be a PowerPoint, has to be a video, has to be a podcast, but sometimes we need to wander around a little bit. Have you found that to be the case in uh, your realm? Yeah, that's entirely true. I think um, so much of teaching 
is a process of unlearning. Um, even sometimes a process of like going through unlearning and like healing sort of the fear and sort of negative self-perceptions that have been layered on by education. Um, and again, that's in no way meant to be like teacher blaming, that's system blaming. And increasingly when I've had students mind their histories of writing and what makes them see themselves as a writer or a multimodal composer or what makes them feel like they can do creative work in school or not, I will say, like usually I seem to find that they more and more had one teacher, especially if they were in <laughs> Southwest Ohio and I've started inquiring as to who they were and I'm tracking like some writing project influence over the years. Um, Jason, it all, it all tracks <laughs> back to Beth Reimer. It all tracks yeah. back to Beth Reimer. So, so <laughs> there's that, but yeah, it's a lot of, you know, I, I've been evaluated based on whether or not this followed sort of a standard five paragraph essay argument format, like grammar is what mattered most. Um, but then there's even like the unlearning that when we do multimodal texts, I often have students think, I wanna make a Hollywood film. I wanna make like a new Netflix series. And it's like, okay, um, those are great texts for inspiration, but you're probably not going to be able to make that thing because that requires a lot of collaboration and sort of a large budget. And so part of it becomes- And years. Years, years. Yeah. You might have a semester, right? So part of it becomes like needing to rethink what our mentor texts are and having mm. our other mentor texts be amateur digital production and to sort of embrace like the amateur, you know, it's also like meant for a really particular group of people. Like it's not necessarily going to become like a nationally syndicated NPR show and it doesn't need to become, although I would love it. I would yeah. love it. If it <laughs> like, no, I hear this so much. I, I love this so much. There are a lot of, th there are a lot of things I want to dig into here. I think I'll start with because of the pressure to create a product that will get an A plus, and because of the pressure um, that surrounds anyone who's creative, like everything you see, someone's doing it better than you are doing it. And it, I mean, every, I'm sure that every creative field has that kind of weird creative jealousy, right? But there's mm -hmm. also pressure that comes with that. And then when you pile the pressure of getting grades and the expectations of teachers with a capital T, um, in the system with a capital S put on students just because of the way things are. It robs a learning of joy, of grace, of reflection, of intentional procrastination. And what I'm hearing in your work is it's, you're not just having students do multimodal projects. You are having students approach learning with joy, reflection, grace, intentional procrastination, the things that are really required for meaningful work. Yeah, I think that's I think that's entirely right. And and I think a lot of it is actually about truly disrupting the teacher with a capital T. Um, because one thing that um, this is actually something my advisor who really kind of led me, is one of the people that led me down this path, uh, Cynthia Self, Cindy Self, um, said English teachers have the ability to make any new form of technology or any new genre boring. <laughs> <laughs> and we should not do that. And honestly, my history shows like there is that tendency. And so sometimes students, it's a process of getting students to trust me that I'm like, no, I really want you to make a video. I want you to make a video that 12 year olds would want to watch. 
and I don't want it to, and therefore it doesn't need to end with MLA citations. <laughs> And it doesn't need to have a traditional kind of intro. It should have a creative hook that's audience appropriate. Um, and so that's been that's been a project I've been working on in my course for pre-service teachers that um, I have students exploring a, a key concept in writing pedagogy and then trying to explain and engage that concept for different audiences, including like students at a particular grade level, like teachers, parents, um, sometimes like broader internet communities. And what's really powerful about that is I turn over much of the power to peer response and I sort of make clear, like I've had people make TikTok videos. It's really hard to make a TikTok video that is actually a funny TikTok video and explain something deep and profound about writing. And I will say this past term, I got a couple that like really just made me laugh my ass off and all of us laugh our asses off. And yet I was like, you actually just kind of talked about how writing is constitutive of identity in a really complex way, but broke it down in TikTok. Um, but part of the process of getting there was A, making it safe to be like, this is really hard. It's possible you might not fully succeed. Mm -hmm. And also we're gonna trust each other. I'm gonna trust the other students in class who are actually on TikTok more than a couple times a year to evaluate whether or not it succeeded in that genre. Um, this also means have to rethink grades, of course. So yeah, I it's have a very you read my mind. Ungraded. I have a, a very. I haven't actually gone full ungrading, um, like. But I have a lot of my course is like all the process steps mm -hmm. are all like credit no credit, and then like the final project I have a A plus A B not yet rubric with. Mm -hmm optional revision at the B stage and required revision at the not yet stage. And th like, that's like enough that for my students that are really invested in grades, it gives them something to work towards, mm -hmm. but it also like, I think does my, my clear sense that like, no, when I say you can take risks, mm -hmm. um, I value it. In fact, creative risk-taking is in the rubric. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, is one of the things that kind of can get you the honorific A plus. Like, yeah. if you're, that's something really important to you to 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 have that monitor. Yeah. I think it at this point in the educational process, by the time a student's gone through twelve plus grades, you're not going to undo that conditioning in one sem semester. <laughs> that's that's just too much. But I like that. I love your approach. I think that every teacher who's trying to go within uh, a gradeless type of system is always in the middle of the process. Yeah. I don't think it's one where you ever get to the end of it just because uh, you, nobody, you have to be, you have to have everybody in the world doing it and nobody's parents expecting A's at any point. <laughs> it's true. Although I will say that the writing project has, uh, and our MAT teachers have been um, a joy for me like, and are pushing me to go farther. Because um, I actually, my undergrad is from New College of Florida, mm -hmm. which is one of the few uh, colleges out there that has narrative evaluation still and no grades. And it was by far the best experience of my life, like as far as education um, and just generally a fun time. But especially as far as education, because I really felt, you know, that I was just like, I took whatever classes I wanted to take because they were interesting to me. And like, I pushed myself really far because I really cared about what the letter that 
my professor would write me at the end of the semester would say. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't worried about failing or not. Like I knew that if I just did the work, I was gonna pass. And I was just invested in the feedback. So I think I'm gonna push farther and sort of figure out how to, how to, it's mostly how to deal with Canvas. Like our course management system is so point driven and students organize their lives around it. And so I'm still negotiating that. But I also think like, it's okay. There are different ways to make ungrading work. And yeah. you know, we all are gonna find what's gonna work for us and our students. But I do think that the first step to doing like meaningful writing instruction and meaningful multimodal instruction is we have to rethink our assessment because our assessment is where the fear comes from. Yeah. And so whatever we can do to like undo the fear, like- Yeah, assessment takes, like if so much of the work is process, like I, in, I heard a teacher's college reading and writing project teacher once say that our classroom should be the place where they begin the skill that they will master um, a few teachers from now, but they should begin practicing really hard at that skill in your room. But grading makes it so that you have to jump out of process and move straight to product and it makes that process work so hard. So I wanted to jump into the history of like, if I'm talking to Jason Palmieri and I don't talk about the history of multimodal education, then I've dropped the ball. <laughs> I don't know, I know you don't wanna, you could spend hours talking about this, but you've been dancing around it a little bit already. What can you tell us about the history? This is such a big question, but we'll go for it anyway. What can you tell us about the history of this kind of work? Sure. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll sum up my key points, but I'll, I'll maybe give you like a little sense of sort of my journey. Like when I first started doing multimodal teaching, um, I actually, when I went to like grad school, I was kind of a Luddite. I wasn't into computers at all. Like, and you know, as I said, my student earlier, my students and their interests led me to multimodality. And so I had this freak out, like, what am I as an English teacher doing, teaching people to make flash movies at the time and Photoshop collages. That was some of the cool things we were doing back in the day. And, um, and that, that made me turn to history. And so in my first book, I really, focused in on the history of college writing instruction and had found how most of the foundational theory about writing process actually showed that that process was deeply multimodal and that um, there was an interesting history of people making multimedia texts and connecting those, showing how like filmmaking was rhetorical and similar to the rhetorical choices with, of our own audience that you might make. Um, so I found a decent amount there with the college professors, but what I kept finding was around the edges of that, the most interesting stuff was actually happening in the K-12 space, and it was happening especially in the English Journal Archive. Um, and that was too much for me to deal with at that time, so that book just got done. But then um, I was like, wow, English Journal's archives go back to 1912. And when I started this project, I knew at least in the 30s, there had been a lot of people having students make radio programs um, in English classes. And so I just got interested in this. Uh, I found a friend of mine from grad school, Ben McCorkle, who's also interested in digital stuff and history stuff. And uh, we just read it all. <laughs> we, we opened every English journal from 1912 to 2012, uh, skimmed through and then read and, you know, coded 
did any text that had anything to do with technology. Um, and I think what I would say, the few key insights that we're left with is that one thing is we found a pattern that whenever a technology was new, like English teachers jumped into it and they did really creative stuff with it. Like when radio was new, they were like, we're gonna get our students to make radio. We're either gonna try to really get them on the real radio or if we can't do that, we're gonna have them write a radio drama and then perform it live behind a sheet in the school auditorium, <laughs> like making all the sound effects. Like we're gonna, we're gonna do something fun. Similar thing happened when you know, the first film cameras kind of came on the scene. But we tracked, there was this big burst of, let's have students make media. Let's break out of the traditional forms of writing and reading. Let's rethink what literacy is. And then over time, like it just sort of became, oh, this is just another thing we can analyze and write about. So like after the initial burst of radio production in the thirties, like it just becomes, okay, we can have them listen to a radio version of a literary text and talk about it. But there's sort of no more making until the audio tape shows up in the seventies and then people get excited about it. Like similar thing with film, like film just becomes, we'll watch film adaptations of literature, you yep. know, it becomes kind of domesticated. And then the Super 8 and like VHS comes out and now iMovie and you get these sort of TikTok. new bursts. And so I think, and there, yeah, TikTok. And there, there are a couple of reasons for that. So I think one of them is, um, I think when the medium is new and we don't know what to do with it, it's actually a profound moment for educational innovation. And we should, not look at a new medium and think, how can I use this to teach what I'm already teaching? But think, how can I use this to blow up all my assumptions about the classroom? How can I ask my students what they want to do with it and listen to their answers and then change everything? Um, so I think as far as why does that keep not happening? Um, I sort of see two angles. Like one is just a fear teachers have. Like, you know, it's a loss of authority to, engage your students in making kinds of not experienced at making. Um, so that's one reason why, like, you know, in the multimodal course, a lot of that we're doing this summer, that being the summer with Stacey Reeder, a lot of what we're gonna do is just like make stuff mm -hmm. in a playful way, not require all that stuff to have a great product. Just like try out different tech tools, see what we can make with them, see what kind of insights happen for us. And then maybe see if there's like one piece that comes out of it that, you know, we really yeah. wanna craft and revise and hone. I think teachers need that making experience. The other one I think is, the other reason is, is a very structural one. Like, you know, when we really dug down, especially into the film moment, like it's not surprising that Greenwich, Connecticut was a hotbed of film production. And like, they were just as rich in Greenwich then as they were now. <laughs> and so, you know, like a lot of students had hobbyist cameras available or, you know, parents that could pay for film. Um, we found a few other examples where like they were actually film student film production was like grant funded or funded through the schools like Denver had a really interesting program in this time period. Um, but what happened as too often happens is the instructional film industry started getting going and they said stop having your students make video make films we will make professional films for them and then you can just show them to them and they will work. <laughs> it's essentially like the move, you know, movement or the prepackaged ed tech movement yeah. of, of that time period was the instructional film industry. And I think that became a similar kind of thing is that, you know, 
it then became a medium of lecture when, as it started, it was like, let's have students go out and make documentaries or make their own fictional adaptations mm -hmm. of literature, which is a much richer, like, meaning-making experience than just watching a film made by somebody mm -hmm. else. Um, so, so, yeah, I guess there's that one. Um, and I think the other one that I would say came through throughout is that um, multimodality and especially working with new technologies, I sort of call them the new media, like the new media ever knew at the time. So right now, TikTok is sort of the new media, but in the 30s, radio was the new media, um, is that what's, what they're really great at is having students compose work for a real audience. And sometimes this means, especially like in the internet world, like literally they can publish their work and circulate it. Um, I think about like my favorite story along these lines in my own classes is in 2008, I had a seminar on political rhetoric and new media, like a first year honor seminar. And I had them make political video remixes. And you know, for most of them, it was just a, a great learning experience. But one of my students made a remix of um, the creator of Family Guy reading a Sarah Palin interview in the voice of Peter Griffin. And like, it went viral. Um, it even has a weird afterlife just because Family Guy has an afterlife. Um, and it, you know, it may have played a small role in that particular election. Like, but I don't think, for me, I initially thought like those viral moments were the most important moments, but I actually don't think that anymore. I think the most important moments are actually the moment when like somebody else in that class saw that thing you made and they forgot that they were responding to you as a school assignment. And we're like, just that's really freaking cool. And here's why that's really cool. And here's how you could make it cooler. And I think it's actually those little more micro moments mm -hmm. um, of like response from people you know uh, that just break down this idea that like school is just doing assignments for the grade that actually I think matter the most to me. I hear that. I completely hear that. I don't know if I actually answered, if I actually answered what we can learn from the history. Um, yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I, I tried. Well, I mean, and if people want to hear more about the history, I have a podcast to send them to, Sound Writing Pedagogies, English Via the Airways, Recovering 1930s Radio Pedagogies by Jason Palmieri and Ben, McCor ben McCork. Well, you can just search Jason Palmieri into your podcast uh, app and it, this one will pop up. It's so good. It's so good. And I wanted to <laughs> dig into it a little bit because... I think that there's some really cool teaching teaching implications in addition to it being like this really great blend of radio lab meets uh, something else. Like it was, I love the way <laughs> you approach the project. It digs into the history of this kind of multimodal education in interesting ways and also exposes some of the problematic things that have happened over the years. Um, but the thing I wanted to talk about specifically was how you did this project because it seems like maybe you believe that teachers should be doing these projects alongside students. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so yeah, that, that podcast you, uh, you mentioned was actually like the first time that like Ben and I decided like we want to tell this history in a way that actually is inspired by 
the genres of student media production. So we'd done some stuff that was multimodal and that we'd like graphed out trends across time. But this time we were like, no, we, if we're talking about radio production, like let's make a radio program. Except what a radio program is or that's accessible for us today is a podcast. Um, though I think uh, in our Radiolab-esque sound effects, we did a lot to try to reference old timey radio um, along the way. And, you know, that actually ultimately kind of, that was the seeds of our, our book project, 100 Years of New Media Pedagogy, and what kind of made so many different pieces of weird media. Like then when we got to film, we made a silent film. Um, so yeah, that podcast actually is embedded in chapter four of the book now. But I think what I remember most about process was how it really made us like get out of our academic selves. Like we came into our like podcast drafting meeting and we had a bunch of like long quotes from all these articles that we've read. And like, we started writing, you know, like we would write an academic article <laughs> and then we were like, this doesn't work. So I think then there was like, um, I know we were at Ben's and we were recording mostly in his basement because it was better for sound. But yeah, I remember like we went and like took a walk to the Tim Hortons and uh, like on the walk to the Tim Hortons, like we just sort of talked about like the stuff we'd read and like how funny it was. <laughs> and like we were just kind of cracking, cracking each other up about some of the, you know, kind of delightfully inspiring, problematic and just plain weird ways ways that 1930s English teachers talked about radio yeah and I think it was like in that conversation then we got back to like drafting like we were really drafting a script and so it's like we'd sit there in google docs and then like draft the script back and forth read aloud to be like that doesn't quite sound like improvised as we read it aloud then like change the script back um and I think if I remember correctly I think we recorded that one too like in like kind of in beats, like in sort of three minute movements um, and kind of had ideas for some of the post-production sound effects, but a lot of that actually happened later, what we were really trying to get. Um, and then of course we realized, huh, quotes, how can we make quotes interesting? Because mm. long academic quotes usually aren't. And then they're like, well, we need to bring the teachers back to life, <laughs> which means we can't read the quotes. <laughs> we need to to get other people to be voice actors for us and to inhabit them. And uh, I remember discovering that like the English department in particular had a lot of people that were really prepared to do this work. <laughs> so one week I just went around, I emailed some folks, I went around my laptop and just said, would you be willing to read a quote for me? And then gave a little direction like, you know, my colleague, Chris Cheek, who's a um, punk British poet said, would you like me to do this in BBC voice? And I said, yes, yes, I would, Chris. <laughs> and, you know, another one of the grad students at the time was like, would you like me to do this in old timey radio announcer voice? And I was like, yep. yes, yes, I would. Um, and, the, and the record became, like, needle. Really excited. I love it. Yeah, and the, the record, record needle hiss. That is a nice effect. <laughs> yeah, like, no, we, Actually, you know, the funny thing is you might have noticed that the uh, the podcast starts with a disclaimer that these aren't the real voices. And that's because one of the peer reviewers, our first draft didn't have that. One of the peer reviewers like was like, I went throughout thinking you had this amazing archival material. And then I realized in the end, when I got to the credits, <laughs> these were voice actors. <laughs> really? It does sound <laughs> pretty really thought that we found the recording of people who, like... <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyway, I guess it was a sign that like that that tape hiss, you know, that, that the record scratch and the like old timey radio hiss and the yes. really great performances of our collaborators actually convinced the person. And so yeah. we were like, well, we'll do this disclaimer, but we'll do it in sort of a cheeky way. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I guess, you know, that's that's maybe a, I figured I would go a little like inside baseball on production because this is a podcast. So I guess sure, that, yeah. that makes that makes sense. Um, but no, even, I love it. I love it because it shows um, you weren't just making a podcast just to do something and have an example. There were lots of really intentional decisions that were made. Like one of them okay. that cracked me up several times was the use of curse words and then bleeping them out. Yeah, I I think that, and it's funny, there have been some other, I think then um, we don't, I think we maybe don't bleep out the curse words in our second podcast, because that one is dedicated to those 70s, 80s, and 90s. <laughs> but there's lots of like really I will, I will leave it to your imagination what exactly I'm saying when I'm going off about the sexist, ableist standards of voice. Yes. That particular dudes in the time were trying to uphold in our classrooms. But suffice it to say, it needed to be believed. Yeah. <laughs> it, I was, can, it was inappropriate. I can imagine. Like, that was the other thing that blew my mind was uh, in, in the, the NCTE publications in the 30s sounded like the worst teachers in a school in a teaching lounge, just talking to each other. But and that was, was in a publication. Like, yeah, like, you know. The phrase stupid and lazy was mm -hmm. like said about students a lot of the time. Um, but what I, what I think fascinating about it is like, these were the progressives, mm -hmm. you know, like these were actually like the uh, teachers that were pushing boundaries and that were trying to engage their students that they were calling stupid and yes. lazy. Yes. Um, and I think to some extent that's like a real reminder of just how sedimented negative assumptions about students and their capabilities are in education and honestly still are today like there was this part of me that i mean i was very offended by it and i was like well i'm glad that like nct will never publish something that calls a student stupid or lazy again um but i also think like it's too simple to me to call that a progress narrative because i think like yeah we've changed the language of publication but have we changed what's in everyone's hearts and like in some ways these these teachers at least put it out there in ways that could, you know, could be critiqued. Um, yeah, if, if they weren't, if they were uh, keeping it under tabs, we wouldn't be able to learn for, from it, I guess, as a silver lining. <laughs> Small silver yeah, for the record, it's wrong. It's definitely yeah. wrong. And I, I guess I it's, a... yeah, it's easier to see a wolf than a wolf in sheep's clothing, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, oh, I forget why I wanted to go with this, but, oh yeah, I got it, I got it now. Um, the, the reason I wanted to really do some of this inside baseball talk is because I think that we have that curse of knowledge all the time as educators where we have forgot, and I keep, I talk about this almost every episode, so sorry if you've listened to other episodes, listeners, um, but we have this curse of knowledge issue where we have forgotten what it's like to struggle with the content that we're teaching, and it causes some us to gloss over things that need where we need to slow down and I was wondering all the thought and the nuance that you put into this podcast it has to have impacted the way you taught multimodal uh 
work in your class, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think like, yeah, the sheer amount of time, like that, that, that even that just one production took, um, I think has sort of made me realize like the need to open up much greater like amounts of time for production. Um, and, you know, also like if it needs to be collaborative, then I think we need to provide spaces for that collaboration to happen partly during class time. Um, like, because um, yeah, it's, it might seem simple. I think that's, that's the real problem with a lot of multimodal production is if it's well-crafted, it seems simple and seamless. Like, you know, I think uh, if we succeeded, people who listened to our podcast thought like Ben and I were just like shooting the shit for 20 minutes and calling it scholarship. <laughs> like, because, but it's, you know, like, no, we, like, we're not, we're not that articulate and we're just shooting the shit. Like we, that's why it was scripted. <laughs> but then it was another way of scripting to then try to make it sound real and conversational and even practice performance, you know, to get to those particular layers. And I think that's a piece that, that too often isn't seen. Um, I, I think for me with teaching, then that means, especially what we need is process documentation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cause I can even think about that with something sim simpler from the book. Like we made Buzzfeed listicles to sum up our key um, areas of interest. And so that wasn't complex technically, but to actually really try to like write in the voice and to really like try out 10 different gifts to find the gift that works perfectly, like the number of times like you put in new gifts and then like edited them. Like it's still, you know, it still actually took a couple days. Um, but I, I think this is where the reflective writing piece that comes on the side of it, the sort of process notes are sort of important to me. Mm -hmm. Like I sort of need to know about choices. Like mm -hmm. I need you to share with me like, hmm, well, I wanted this to be a listicle and here was my first draft. And then here's how I changed the voice to make it more like that. Or here's why I chose this gift as opposed to the one I initially had because I thought, you know, it better kind of reach the audience. So I think that's um, the need to have students reveal some of their thinking um, so that you can sort of really see where that thinking is happening or it, not. Um, all right. So this is important. I want to slow this part down. I because it's not just students who jump to the product with multimodal teaching. I, I know that when I first started, I know that I was thinking about all the products that kids would make and I wasn't <laughs> focused enough on the process. And as a result, we just did one big project that took a quarter or something like that, an entire quarter. And it didn't give students a chance to suck at first. It didn't give people a chance to experiment, take procrastinating walks. It didn't give people a chance to learn from mistakes or reflect. Um, so I'm, I wanted to kind of drill into how you have students make their learning or thinking visible throughout the project through the reflective writing. Can you talk about how you um, ask students to do this kind of reflective writing throughout yeah. or how you have them do it? I mean, so I think there are kind of like several several sort of strategies like um it's it's still kind of a, a scaffolded organized process that kind of begins with um well i think it used to begin with 
a proposal, but I realized starting at a proposal is like too quick. Like, so it often begins like with some like invention activities that often usually includes like what I call a technological exploration activity where I just have like a list of links to like 20 free multimodal making resources mm. and say, I want you to spend an hour and I want you to try out one of these that either you've never used before or that you feel like you're not yet a power user of. And I just want you to make a thing. It doesn't have to be related to the project at all. It can be about your cat. It can be about anything. I just want you to make a thing and then reflect on briefly on how you learned this new technology, how you taught it to yourself and what you think it might do for this project. And like that starts, I think that that one is really important because otherwise that's how you end up with like 25 Google slideshows like or 25 iMovies or sort of whatever the thing or 25 Prezies from back in the day, like whatever the thing is that everyone knows. Or actually I think right now it might be only Canva. You know, Canva has its a moment. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a moment of just like playing around with the tools, figuring out what you want to say, but also doing things like free writing, going on walks, talking it out. Um, then we get to a proposal that is actually, okay, here's really what I want to do. And the proposal stage, I think is still really important for me because it helps me talk with students about how to scope their work. Um, so sometimes, you know, uh, that's where I can kind of find out, hmm, you're, you, you have a plan that's going to take you three years. So, <laughs> and that's great. And I want to honor that ambition, but let's like, let's figure out what part of your three-year plan can you actually do in this class? And then, you know, how might it set you forward for, for the kind of things you want to make? Um, and then it's, it's really a, a process of like structured peer response across multiple drafts. Um, and each peer response also has like a reflection about what choices you made, what choices you're still struggling with. So when we get to that final reflection, like we've been reflecting all along, um, I also usually have kind of a mentor text revision reflection, which is like hmm. find at different stages in the process, like go find a mentor text of the kind of thing you want to make and then talk about what are things you can take from that to come back to it. Um, so yeah, like make a collection of TikTok videos that are actually funny. Like tell me why they're funny. What I noticed about your description of how you use reflection in this work throughout is you're not just having students explore at the beginning, which I think is also a brilliant move, like having students explore the kinds of genres they're interested in. But I think that sometimes I'm guilty of not giving students a chance to explore in the middle and toward the, as they get closer to the end of the project too, because you, when I'm creating, I'm listening all to like if I'm making music, I'm listening to different things that might inspire me throughout the whole thing, not just at the beginning. I love that you embed all these things throughout the project. Yeah, I think I think that that's like particularly important in some ways for the find your own mentor text piece. Like that seems to work better in the middle. Like you know, I mean, for this multi-genre, multi-modal project, I do. Once I did it once, I started you know, getting permission from students to share final projects as mentor texts. And that was really helpful early on, just so that they could like really see 
Um, and also I think then they really believed me when I said like, no, you can take creative risks. Like, cause one of the ones I share has somebody like um, making a dance and then reflecting about dance as a form of writing that's connected to identity like other forms of writing are. <laughs> and so like that sort of like noted like, no, I really mean it. Like that you can do things that are beyond traditional school genres. Mm -hmm. uh, but so that helped earlier, but I think actually the, the find your own mentor text I find is more helpful at the revision stage. Mm -hmm. Cause usually like they have enough to get started about what genre they're working in. If it's more of a pop culture genre, but it's really at the end, at the moment when you have a draft and then you look at something else that's a little bit more polished, like you can kind of then see where your draft like needs to go. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's part of the reason why I often like the, the kind of find your own mentor texts moment. It actually is a revision activity. Often yeah. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing because um, just a little bit of an ad admission is when I was in high school and college, I became a person who brings guitar everywhere. And that was my thing. <laughs> um, surprise me. You've seen this person on the street, person who brings guitar everywhere. <laughs> and one of my little uh, things that I use to get out of work is I would ask the teacher if I could create some kind of musical project because music was so easy. And um, I knew that it would be easier than less work maybe is what I thought than writing a report. That's what I thought. Um, but in college, I tried to pull the same stunt and usually I would just do like a Weird Al Yankovic version of a song with the teacher's curriculum laced over top of it. And I would end up crafting half of a page and it would get a good grade versus students who are writing multiple, multiple page essays. Um, and I thought I was just so smart for doing this. But then in college, we were doing this, uh, I was taking a, a literature class and we were reading uh, The Divine Comedy and uh, I did this project where I just recorded, I read, I got Merwin's um, translation of Purgatorio and I recorded certain sections as a musical or something like that. And then I did some kind of explanation of it. And it ended up being a lot more work than other students were. I thought it was so simple, but I probably spent hours trying to get the recording right. And here's the crazy thing. I remember jack squat of what I learned in college but I remember in Italian, certain cantos of Purgatorio. I still have it memorized. It's still in my mind. I thought I was tricking the teacher. Um, but the point is, in, I wanna go back to that podcast that you recorded with Ben McCorkle. You talked about a teacher among the problematic teachers. You talked about one who says that this work can help students create and learn something that's good and beautiful and true. Yeah. And I feel like I found that through the work. Can you talk about how, in your experience, you've been able to find work that's good and beautiful and true? Oh, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's funny because, like, in that moment, you know, we sort of, like, joke about the good, the beautiful, the true, and sort of how, like, old-timey and almost, like, naive it is. But I think we also sort of realized that, like, yeah, I do actually think that that's still a value um, that we are seeking in our media. Like, I think that, 
the good and true. Um, I feel like in our current media landscape, like, yeah, just taking the time to check the facts and, and check the sources and provide evidence like that is incredibly important in any form of media making that we're going to be doing if we're having students engage in like public argument in these forums like we need to make sure that they don't follow uh, negative examples out there of media that is spreading harmful misinformation um, but I think maybe I'll stop at, at at the beautiful because I actually think that the beautiful is the thing that we have lost too much of in writing education that there sometimes is too much focus on just making the thing that is perfectly adapted to its audience and purpose. And like rhetoric is my field, like I care deeply about audience and purpose. Um, but I also think like stepping back and just thinking about making work that just speaks on a sort of deep emotional level, like to your soul, whether it's like work that makes you laugh like work that makes you cry like work that just makes you want to keep listening keep watching like kind of be amazed um i think i think like asking us to make something that we think is beautiful um and talk about why it's beautiful is just this like profound moment that we don't do enough of um i think about my mentor kate ronald um and then one thing I took from her is asking students to always tell me what their most beautiful sentence is. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I think you expand that to like multimodal, which was not quite, you know, Kate went with me on the multimodal, but it wasn't her thing. Um, but it's sort of the, what's the most beautiful part of your project? And I find that that question like just gets us thinking about like the emotional aspects and bringing people joy and building connection in sort of ways that how did you adapt to your audience doesn't get that quite the same answer. You know, there's a reason that Jason Palmieri is the co-director of the Ohio Writing Project. And if you were paying attention during that interview, I think you have a pretty good understanding. He's brilliant and smart and thoughtful and empathetic and he's creative and he cares about people under his watch getting to be creative as well. I just love that about him and I loved everything about this conversation. Um, I want to thank Jason, of course, and I want to thank our contributing poets. Um, be sure to check out our episode's show notes for all the links so that you can follow Jason Palmieri's work. We also have a transcription of today's poem and ways that you can connect more with the Ohio Writing Project. This is our second to last episode of the season before we take a summer break. So I wanted to also take a minute to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Because if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, well, you know. So thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Write Answers.